You know, whether you are competing against a trout, fly fishing, or you're playing competitive sports, every man likes to win. In fact, I don't know anyone who likes to lose. I mean, when it comes to sports, winning is always better. But but do you know there's something better than winning the game? And that's winning a championship. In in fact, uh, there's probably not a man in this room that, as a boy, dreamt Uh, didn't dream of hitting the game-winning shot as the buzzer goes off, winning the championship for his team. But reality sets in, and you discover it's, it's hard to win the game, much less win a championship. But did you know there's something better than that? And that's winning back-to-back championships. Now, that's difficult. I mean, to repeat... Well, uh, that's quite an accomplishment. But to three-peat, that's next to impossible. A three-peat is when a team wins three championships in a row. And if you've been watching the NBA Finals, you know that's exactly what the Miami Heat are attempting to do. And if they accomplish their goal, then it qualifies them for sports dynasty. Did you know that's exactly what dad Uh, what God desires for every dad in this room today. I'm not talking about winning championships. I'm talking about winning the hearts of your children so that it not only impacts your children, but your grandchildren. God's desire for every dad in this room today is to three-peat. In fact, did you know that's exactly what Moses communicated to the nation of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy? In fact, if you'll turn with me there, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1, and follow along, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. He begins this way. He says, Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess." that you may fear the Lord your God, to keep His statutes and His commandments which I command you, you and your sons and your grandsons, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. I mean, did you see it? Did you see the three P? Notice, he says, so that you, that's the dad, and your sons, that's your children, And your grandsons, that's your grandchildren. That's a three-peat. See, God's not so interested in winning championships as He is in creating legacies. Hundred-year legacies of influence. Now, the question I have at the start is why this generational command given to God to the nation of Israel? Well, I think God understands that drift occurs in families. I mean, you see it time and time again in the Old Testament. I mean, you have a generation of dads who know God, followed by a generation, a second generation that just knows of God. And then there's a third generation that knows not the God of their fathers. I mean, this generation here knows the works of God. And then this generation, the second generation, knows about the works of God, followed by a generation that knows not the works of God. I mean, this generation, the first generation, ends up serving God, but the second generation ends up serving the God of their fathers. And then the third generation, they end up serving false gods. 
I mean, this generation, this first generation has first-hand faith. Followed by a second generation that has second-hand faith. Followed by a third generation that has no faith at all. And Moses and God is saying to us today, Dads, you were built for better than that. In fact, it was Ralph Sockman who said this, What makes greatness is starting something that will live after you. That lives on after you. When it comes to a dad, he's talking about a three-peat. So how do we engage as dads in order to three-peat? I mean, how do we pass on a legacy that grows and lives on long after we're gone? Well, Moses tells us in the rest of the passage. Look at verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. You see, the, the truth about God and what He's like is foundational to the values that we want our kids to embrace as they grow older. And so an effective dad has got to begin with truth And so Moses begins where God begins, by declaring truth. Notice those first words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Do you know what that phrase is? It's called the Great Shema. It's the doctrinal affirmation of Judaism repeated in thousands of synagogues every Saturday. In fact... That statement is at the heart of Israel's grasp on truth as found in the Scriptures. But but truth demands a response. And so a dad's response needs to be a response of the heart. So notice how Moses concludes. He says, so you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. I mean, what Moses is saying is that for truth, the truth about God to be Embrace by our children, then that truth must first capture a dad's heart. In other words, if truth does not capture a dad's heart, then something else is going to capture the hearts of our kids. John F. Kennedy was the 37th president of the United States, and he left behind a legacy that was dramatically influenced by his dad, Joe Kennedy. Now, John Kennedy was growing up, was in church virtually every Sunday. He learned the truth about God Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. In fact, his dad gave large sums of money to the church. But when it came to living out the truth about God, John Kennedy was confused. In fact, when he was 12 years old, Uh, His dad invited the famous actress Gloria Swanson to their summer home to spend a week with the family. Unknown to the children, Joe Kennedy was having an affair with Gloria Swanson. Well, one afternoon that week, Joe Kennedy decided to take Gloria out for a sailboat ride on their large sailboat. And John Kennedy, at age 12, got wind of that and decided he would hide below deck. And so when Joe and Gloria were out maybe a couple miles offshore, John Kennedy decided now is a great time to come up and surprise my dad. And when he uh, went up to the top deck, he had the surprise of his life. There his dad was having sex with Gloria Swanson right out there in the open. 
And so stunned and shocked and shamed by his dad's behavior, John Kennedy threw himself overboard. Joe Kennedy dove in after him to save his son, pulled him back on the deck of the ship. Now, Joe Kennedy knew what he had done was morally wrong, but he tried to rationalize his behavior to his son, John. And so John Kennedy was left confused about truth. And as a result, John Kennedy left behind a legacy of womanizing and affairs. That's the unintentional power and influence of a dad on a child's life. You see, if truth does not capture the hearts of the dad, then something else will capture the hearts of our kids. So the central issue when it comes to being a dad is not, God, please change my children, but God, please change my children's father, change my heart. So Moses begins by telling us that a legacy of influence begins with truth. And truth has got to capture our hearts as dads. But secondly, he says that truth needs to capture a dad's home. Look at verse 7. And you shall teach of them diligently to your children when you, when you talk to them and when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Did you notice the cause-effect relationship here? Moses is saying that truth, if it's not in our heart, It'll never be in our home. And the reason for that is because the home is where the heart is revealed. You see, it's easy to fool you. I only see you a couple hours on Sunday, maybe once or twice during the week. But I can't pull the wool over my kids' eyes. I can't fool fool Josh, Daniel, and Laura. They know what I'm like because the home is where the heart's revealed. And that's why I think the posture of a dad in the home needs to be one of authenticity that comes through apology. You see, gentlemen, we're not that good. We're going to make mistakes all along the way. And so the posture of a dad when you mess up is to go to your kids and apologize and seek forgiveness. Now, you can fool your kids when they're young. In fact, they'll think you're perfect. They'll put you on a pedestal, especially if you've got sons between the ages of 8 and 12. They'll put you on a pedestal. Our job as dads is to take ourselves off that pedestal. And you do that by admitting your mistakes and seeking their forgiveness. Because if you don't do that when they're young, they'll yank you off the pedestal when they become teenagers. And great will be the fall they're from. In fact, I'll never forget uh, my middle son, Daniel. He's my ADD child, and we were always asking him to do something, and he'd always lose focus. One Saturday, he had lost focus probably a dozen times. And I remember coming upstairs one more time to check to see if he had done whatever he was supposed to do, and he was off doing something else, and I lost it. I was tired, and I was frustrated. He was about eight years old, and I can remember grabbing him by the arms and picking him above my head and said, You stop it. You stop it and get this thing done. And it scared him. And God convicted me. I had to go into another room and get control, and then this 40-year-old man had to come in and get on one knee in front of this eight-year-old boy and admit that he was wrong and ask him to forgive him. You see, that's where your integrity shows. 
But, but I also want you to notice that Moses says that the instruction we give is to both be formal and informal. I mean, two words are key to understanding what Moses is saying here. The first is the verb to teach. It means to train and to educate. The second is that verb to talk. It has to do with dialogue. I mean, the first is formal. The second is informal. An effective dad is involved in both. Now, it's for that reason I find myself redoubling my efforts with my kids when they met um, those transition stages, like between childhood and adolescence. I remember when my oldest, Josh, was going to turn 13. He was going into the sixth grade. He was 12 years old. And I knew I needed to step up my engagement with him, but I wasn't sure what to do. Now, Patty was confident what I should do. She, she was giving me Bible study books and suggesting things I'd do with him, but I didn't have a better idea. So I went to him before his sixth grade year, and I said, Hey, Josh, I got an idea. This next school year, well, why don't one day a week we do Bible study together? And he looked at me, he started to laugh. He said, Yeah, yeah Dad, you and I doing Bible study. Uh, wouldn't that be something? I mean, he thought I was making a joke, but I was actually being serious. But I'm a quick read. I said, yeah, yeah, I was just joking about Bible study. And I am just screaming out to God, what do I do here with this son who's moving into adolescence? And so this thought ran through my mind. I didn't have a better idea. I thought maybe it's God. I don't know, but I'll go with it. I said, yeah, yeah, you know, what I was really thinking is that uh, I'd buy your breakfast once a week at your favorite place, McDonald's. I'm buying, but it'll cost you something. Now I had his attention. I said, here's what it'll cost you. I get to ask you a question. You have to answer honestly. You get to ask me a question. I have to answer honestly. Each of us gets one question, and we both have to be honest. Well, it had enough intrigue to it. He he took it hook, line, and sinker, just like fishing for that trout. And so we began meeting on Tuesday mornings at McDonald's. And we began interacting over questions. I began with creative questions. I wanted to set the stage. I wanted this to be fun and exciting. So the first question I asked Josh is, hey, Josh, um, if your closet were a time machine, where would you go and why? And so we talked a little bit about that. His first question he asked me was, Dad, how long do you think I'll play in the NBA? Now, he was just a short little fellow, and I didn't say, you know, one in ten million play in the NBA, son. No, I answered his question with a question. I wanted to engage him further. I said, how long would you like to play? I mean, how many points do you think you'd score? Who do you think you'd play for? And so we just engaged at that level. Well, I was experimenting with this, and I uh, was passing my questions over to another dad, Steve, and he was sharing my questions with his son, Adam, doing the same thing. And so Steve asked Adam the question I asked Josh, if your closet were a time machine, where would you go and why? And uh, they talked about that. Then came time for Adam to ask Steve a question. So Steve said, Adam, okay, now you need to ask me a question. I mean, anything you want to know, son, anything about love, sex, about how I met your mom, I mean, dating, whatever it is, right here. Come on, ask me a question. Adam said, really, Dad, any question? Anything? He said, yeah, man to man, mano to mano, give me your best shot. Come on, give, give it here, come on. Adam looked around and said, well, Dad, I've been wondering, why do farts stink? He said, you think about it, Dad, God could have made them smell any way he wanted, but he made them stink. I want to know why. 
Now, this was a wise dad. He didn't say, son, that's a stupid question. No, he engaged where a sixth grader's mind is. I mean, bodily functions. So they had a discussion about flatulent over breakfast. Well, uh, the... The, the creative questions I asked, they began to move into some developmental questions and some biblical questions. I, I mean, we talked about such things as uh, humility, purity, honesty, integrity. We talked about uh, what is involved in self-discipline. Uh, we talked about a relationship with God. In fact, I remember asking Josh this question. If you could recreate yourself, what would you not change? It's a hard question for him to answer. He wanted to tell me what he would change, what he didn't like about himself. I wanted to hear what he liked, but the question was really a setup so that I could tell him what I liked about him. And I told him how much I admired him and loved him. And that day I saw a sixth grader sit a little higher in his chair. And the next Tuesday we got together. Uh, the question I asked him, I said, uh, God's talking to his angels in heaven. He's talking about you. What do you think he's saying and why? His answer blew me away. But it was really a setup so I could tell him what I think God thinks about him. That God not only loves him, but delights in him, enjoys him, wants to spend time with him. And I watched a young man's walk with God go just a little deeper that day. Now, we discussed issues like peer pressure. We talked about sex. We talked about dating issues, manhood issues. You see, questions, they're like crowbars. They dislodge thoughts and emotions. They free the other person up to feel and express what's going on in their heart. Well, we finished the sixth grade year and I decided to do a little passage of manhood with Josh. And so I invited two other men to join me. I mean, a young man needs to be called or invited into manhood by other men, not by other boys, but by men, men that they admire, that they've known for a while. And so we did a weekend passage of manhood, which was fun and exciting. And I can remember summer break came and I thought, well, I've done my duty. That's a whole year. That was a good year. First Tuesday morning of summer break, there's a knock at the door at 6 a.m. Dad, Dad, we're going to breakfast, aren't we? Well, I told you I'm a quick read. I, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess I didn't set my alarm. Give me a second. And so we met throughout summer break, and then we met through his sixth grade year, seventh grade year, all the way through his senior year, seven years of interacting over questions. Did the same process with my son Daniel, and something similar with my daughter Laura. Now, gentlemen, I want you to know, there were many Monday nights I did not want to have to think of another strategic question. I was tired. I wanted to go to bed. And there were multiple Tuesday mornings when that alarm went off at 6 a.m. I did not want to get up. But what I've discovered in life is that a healthy home is not the product of an accident. It's the product of cultivation. I mean, notice how Moses puts it here. He says you do this diligently. In other words, God's saying you've got to throw everything you've got into this process. 
In fact, let me, let me say something to young dads for a moment. You young dads, do you have a plan to teach your children before they leave home? Well, what's in that plan? I mean, I remember years ago, Pay and I sat down and we talked about a number of things we wanted our kids to have under their belt by the time they left home. They graduated and took a job or went to college. And I began to refine that list. I mean, on our list was the value of integrity and humility, uh, walk with God, balancing checkbook and handling money, uh, the value of honesty. I mean, one of the things on our list was we wanted our kids to experience a third world culture and serve there. We wanted them to give to those who had less than we did. And so when Josh was 16, we, he and I spent two weeks on the Tibetan plateau serving the calm, a tribe in Tibet, the calm Tibetans. And then when Daniel was 17, we spent uh, 10 days in the garbage dumps of San Salvador, rebuilding 10 homes for the poorest of the poor. Uh, Laura and her mom spent two summers in Mexico, rebuilding wheelchairs for the disabled. Gentlemen, do you have a plan? Because if you don't, then their character is not coming from you. It's coming from the culture. And the culture will steal your kids from the confines of your home, and you won't even know they're gone until it's too late. You know, I find it fascinating that an old rabbi named Paul said about the same thing in the New Testament, when he wrote to a church that he planted in Ephesus. In fact, in uh, Ephesians 6, 4, he says this, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, I find it interesting that Paul addresses the fathers specifically. I mean, where are the mothers? I mean, he could have addressed both, but he zeroes in on dad, and the question is why? I think it's because of the influence of the dad. You see, our influence is so pervasive. Paul is saying, gentlemen, the buck ultimately stops with you. And notice what he says contains an encouragement and a warning. I mean, the encouragement is to bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. I mean, every child needs instruction. Every child needs correction. But what I want you to notice is the warning. I mean, without a father's engagement, a time bomb is released in the soul of a child. I mean, look at it. Do you see it? As dads, we only have two choices. We either bring them up well or we provoke them. I mean, we either give them life direction, we fill their soul with substance, or we make them angry. Really, it's the only two choices we're given. And the latter is lethal. And isn't that what we see all around us today? I mean, whether it's angry young men in inner city or it's angry young executives trying to live up to dad's expectations on them or trying to tell their dad, I don't have to live up to your expectations. And if you were to trace those emotions back to the roots, they would, by and large, lay at the feet of a dad. Probably a passive, an uninvolved, an unengaged dad. And what else is interesting about what Paul said is in the New Testament, there were two Greek words that an author could use that could be translated wrath or anger. I mean, the first one is the Greek word thumos. It describes a strong passion. It's an outburst of emotion. 
It's visible and it's explosive. That's thumos. Uh, the other is orge. Now, that's the word Paul uses here. Now, orge uh, is not necessarily an expressive anger, although it will express itself if it's provoked. But by and large, it's talking about uh, suppressed anger. The word in this context refers to a deep-seated, smoldering inner Anger. That's the result of neglect. Can you see what Paul is saying in the text? He's saying, dads, don't treat your children in such a way as they grow up with this quiet inner rage born out of the lack of your involvement in their lives. Instead, notice he says we're to nurture them. In fact, that's what he means by the phrase bring them up. So what exactly does Paul have in mind? Well, nurture means uh, to create an environment of growth. And he describes that environment when he mentions training and admonition. I mean, training is instruction with encouragement. The emphasis is on encouragement. And admonition is talking about correction with love, and the emphasis is on love. So how do we do that? Well, look back in the Deuteronomy passage. Moses tells us, notice the form this kind of instruction needs to take. It says, when you sit in your house, now that's around the dinner table. That's in the living room. Notice training takes place, instruction takes place when you walk by the way. That's the park, that's the mall, that's the ball field. That's taking them fishing. When you rise up. Or when you lie down, that's the bedtime. When you rise up, that's the breakfast table. In other words, instruction, Moses is saying, takes place in the classroom of life. It's looking for creating and taking advantage of those golden opportunities, those moments, those environments that can materialize when you're with your son or daughter. But God is saying that truth about God not only needs to capture a dad's heart, it not only needs to capture his home, but truth about God needs to capture a dad's habits. That's how he concludes. Look at verse 8. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. I mean, did, did you see the cause-effect relationship in that statement? Moses is implying that if it's not in our heart, it's not going to be in our homes. And if it's not in the homes, it'll never become a habit of our life or our kids' lives. I mean, notice carefully, there are two places the truth about God is to be bound. You see the first one? He says, on the hand. Now, he's not talking about writing the Scripture on your hand like a tattoo, I mean, it's symbolic. The hand is symbolic for the actions of our life. Truth needs to impact our actions. But notice the second place it is to be bound. On the frontlets between your eyes. He's talking about the forehead. Now, it's symbolic of our attitudes. So God's truth, the truth about God needs to impact our actions and our attitudes. But notice the two places it's to be written to be written on the doorpost of the house and on the gates. Now, now the doorpost is a picture of the private areas of life. And the gates is symbolic of the public areas of life. 
I mean, in Jewish culture, business was transacted at the gates. In in other words, the truth about what God is like has got to be so pervasive that it influences not just how you think, but what we do. To the most intimate aspects of the bedroom at home, to the most public aspects of community and business life. Now, the question I have is, why such an extreme statement? Why does God make a statement that's so pervasive covering all of life? Let's say, for instance, this this morning I told you that I had solved the mystery of male pattern baldness. I've done experiments, and and I'm going to be selling hair-restoring oil out there in the atrium for 150 bucks a bottle, guaranteed to put hair on your head. Did you buy from me? I mean, you look at me, you go, wait a minute, you're bald as a cue ball. I mean, why would I buy from you? You get a, a whole head full of the stuff, I might buy a boatload. You see, there's a fundamental principle in life. It's a truth. Gentlemen, we cannot pass on what we don't possess. You see, what God desires to do and what He's saying in this passage is He wants to sing a song into our lives. And that song needs to capture our hearts. And the way our kids learn that song is by hearing us sing and watching us live out the words of that song. The way God teaches our children to sing is He sings to them through us. That's the power of a dad. In fact, a study was done some decades ago comparing and contrasting two different families. One was the family of Max Jukes. He was a man of low morals and uh, no principle. He married a woman of light character. And as they studied his family, here are the things they found. Of his known descendants, there were 310 professional vagrants. Uh, 440 of them lived lives wrecked by lying, cheating, and stealing. 130 of them were sent to prison for an average of 13 years each. Seven of his descendants were murderers. He had 100 alcoholic descendants, 60 habitual thieves, 190 public prostitutes. None of them contributed in any positive way to society. In fact, they cost the state of New York millions upon millions of dollars. And then they studied the family of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, a couple who embraced the truth about God and what he's like. And what they discovered in his lineage is there were a hundred lawyers and a dean of a law school. There were 65 professors, 30 judges, 66 physicians, and a dean of a medical school, 13 college presidents, uh, 80 holders of public office, including mayor of three large cities, three governors of three large states, three U.S. senators, comptroller of the U.S. Treasury, and the vice president of the United States. You see, Dad, the, the choice is really ours. What kind of legacy do you want to leave? I think that question is the real measure of a man. 
with the band come on up. Thank you, Kenny. You know, you may be sitting there and say, you know, it's too late for me. My kids are old, and uh, golly, I feel bad. I've blown it. And I want you to know it's never too late. Never, ever too late. I mean, the way you engage with an older child, an adult child, that, that you uh, have issues with, is you look for something to apologize for. You go to them and you seek their forgiveness. And then you begin building from there. Because it's never too late to engage or re-engage. You know, I want to thank you for coming. I hope you dads have a great Father's Day. If you're first time here at Horizon and you have questions, uh, drop by the hearth room, third door on the left. We would love to greet you down there. And if you came prepared to give, offering boxes are outside the door. Thanks for coming and have a great Father's Day.